So there's a question that every single one of us ought to consider, and that is this. If you are a Christian, why do you follow Jesus? And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you are curious all the same about the very same thing for those who do follow Jesus. Why do Christians follow Jesus, especially when the cost of doing so is so great? When we follow Jesus, we give him our devotion, our love, our affection, but not only that, but we also deny ourselves, our flesh, and the things that we once loved and desired and even still wrestle with and put to death daily. But not only that, but even following Jesus can cost us our own reputation. Jesus tells us that we will be hated for his name's sake. And so Christians, why do you follow Jesus? This is an answer that you must be prepared to give. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we ought to be prepared always to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet all the same, we're to do so with gentleness and respect. And so do you know why you have hope? If someone were to ask you why you would continue to follow Jesus, though it may cost you everything, even your life, what would you say? There's a number of reasons why we might give for why we follow Jesus, and there are poor excuses. Tate calls this fire insurance. We do so just so we don't go to hell. And that is not a sufficient reason to follow Jesus if that's the only reason we do so. Even for others like myself who would say, well, I've been raised in the church and so faith has been the thing that I've always had because my parents raised me to believe in Jesus. Well, you know and I know that our parents' faith, if they did have this, is not an adequate reason for us to have faith and to have this hope within us. And even for some, if following Jesus is just a part of our life, just as much as being an American is a part of who we are, just because it's comfortable and convenient and it's where we are, well, once again, this is a a poor defense of the faith that you have because if it's just comfortable enough and reasonable enough for you to continue on in the faith, and that's all the reason for having the faith, well, you are a lukewarm Christian who Christ will spit out. And even more, As the riches of this life and the world come your way, your love for Christ will be choked out, or even as tribulation comes and things get hard, you will not endure for your root does not go deep enough. And so why do you follow Jesus? Well, I have a few illustrations that I think are good comparisons for why a Christian follows Jesus. Let's consider for just a moment why Bilbo Baggins left the comfort of the Shire and his hobbit hole. He went with dwarves, and those dwarves brought him through many dangerous places, but he left because of a hope for riches and treasure that were beyond what he could imagine. So too, we should ask, why did Moses leave the pleasures and treasures of Egypt in order to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? We find out from Hebrews 11 that Moses had faith when he was growing up. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ's greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so, Christian, why do you follow Jesus, though it may cost you everything? Well, here's why. We follow Jesus because in him we have a treasure that is worth more than all that the world has to offer. Listen to our scripture this morning and notice the reason for our hope that Paul gives us in Colossians 1.27. To them, that is to the saints from the previous verse, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, listen to this language here, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul here is picking up on the language that Tate preached on last week, and so hear it again in verse 26. He, last week, Tate unpacked the meaning of this mystery that actually Paul himself was laboring to unfold. The mystery that was once hidden for generations but now is revealed to the saints. And that mystery we saw is Christ and the gospel. That which was hidden for generations but now is plain to those who see Christ. So now in verse 27, when he talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, what we should see is Paul here is not content to simply show us that this is a mystery but we ought to see that the gospel is a mystery that is of great value. Now, there are some mysteries that are are not actually worth uncovering. For example, the mystery of the hidden sock. I could tell you it's probably in one of two places. It's either under the dryer somewhere, or my dog has eaten it and it's now in the backyard. But I could tell you, Looking for that hidden sock is of no value to me because I have a drawer full of them, and so I would prefer to just cut my losses and be rid of the sock. And yet there are some other mysteries that are worth our time to find the hidden things. For example, I wonder how many have lost a precious piece of jewelry, perhaps your wedding ring. All of a sudden, it's not just the petty sock that you can throw away, but you are willing to overturn everything in your house so that you might find that which is precious to you. So to here in this mystery isn't something as petty as a missing sock, but there are riches and glory within this mystery that Paul is laboring to show us and that I'm laboring to show you as well this morning. And so understand what we mean here by riches. I do not mean money or gold, but what riches are is an abundance of something. So to those who are young, you are rich with time, for you have many years in your life, Lord willing, so as long as he continues to give you life. But for those who are older, You are rich with wisdom because you have plenty of experience that has given you wisdom over the years. And so riches is not merely money, but riches here is an abundance of something, and the abundance that he's talking about here is glory, the riches of the glory of this mystery. So understand what we mean by glory. We mean honor and splendor and brightness. And there is an abundance of that here in this mystery, which is the gospel. So understand, Paul is not unpacking a mundane mystery, but instead he is showing the Colossians and us the riches of the glory of this mystery. 
He is showing us here a treasure that is worth being discovered. And so our main question, why do you follow Jesus, might be answered in this. Because in him, there is an abundance. There are riches of glory in this mystery. And so to help us unpack the rest of this text, let me ask us three questions for us to consider. First of all, what is this treasure? What is this treasure? And then after that, I want us to consider how might we obtain this treasure? And then finally, who is this treasure for? So what is this treasure? How might we obtain this treasure? And who is this treasure for? Let's take these one at a time. First, what is this treasure? Paul makes it abundantly clear. The riches of the glory of this mystery is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what we should see is Jesus is our treasure. And that is why we follow him is because he is precious to us. And so Christian, if you're following Jesus, is this true of you? Is Jesus Christ your treasure? It's one thing for us to be able to grasp the mystery of this gospel intellectually, but it's another thing to say that we love and treasure the mystery that has been revealed, which is Christ. Spurgeon, he, he writes on this, this problem about the commonplace of this mystery in the lives of those in the church. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, we live in a time when the gospel is clearly revealed in the word of God. And when that word has its faithful preachers lovingly press it home in its teachings, let us take care that we do not despise the mystery that has now been a household word. You remember how in the wilderness the Israelites fed upon the angels' food until they had enjoyed it so long, so constantly and so abundantly that in their wicked discontentment they called it light bread, I fear me that many in these times are sick with the gospel like those who eat too much honey. They even venture to call the heavenly word commonplace and talk as if it were the old, old story, but a stale story too. Not many hungerings after novelties, longing for things original and startling, thirsting after spiritual dram drinking and sensational preaching, dissatisfied with Christ crucified, though he is the bread which came down from heaven. So it is of some of us, we get kind of bored with the gospel. We get bored with Jesus. We think, well, I've already heard this story. Tell me something new, preacher. And yet if that's us, we would do well to hear Jesus's word to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. The Ephesians, they have a lot going for them, don't they? They have good doctrine and they're continuing and enduring in the faith. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
And so it is for those of us who have found Christ to become boring, this old, old story, instead of being the all-consuming treasure that is worth pursuing and having, even if it costs us everything. If Christ is not your treasure, here and now this morning, it is owing to this. The gospel, this mystery, remains hidden to you. If the gospel is simply a concept of our interest, perhaps a fascination, something that we long to debate over, but not an all-consuming reality that permeates every aspect of your life, it is owing to the fact that you do not understand the gospel in a way that leads to saving faith. So then what is this treasure? That we may love it and enjoy it and delight in it. Is it pardon for sin? Well, this is a sweet reality, but that is not the treasure that Paul has in mind this morning. Is our treasure eternal life? Once again, a sweet reality of the gospel, but once again, this isn't it either. What do the scriptures say? He says this, the riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this is our treasure. It is not just simply eternal life. It is not just pardon for sin, but it is Christ himself in us. And there is no other treasure that is like it. He is not simply another treasure or trinket to be added to the rest, but instead he is our supreme treasure. The parable of the hidden treasure says it well. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then listen to this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And he does not buy the field because the field is of value to him. He goes and buys the field because in it is treasure, treasure that is far more valuable than all that he possesses. And so he is delighted and joyful to sell all that he has so that he might obtain that treasure in the field. And to take it further, that this isn't just a parable, but this is a reality. Paul himself says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So I want us to understand this morning that this reality of this treasure, it is not just a future reality that we are looking forward to, but it is a present reality to us here and now. That's why in the, on our text this morning it says, which is Christ in you. The present tense verb is is being used. It's not will be Christ in you, but today it is Christ in you. And so here this Christian, if you have faith, Christ dwells in you. There are many present implications to this. It's one thing for us to consider the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us dwelling in the midst of sinful people. And yet it's another thing to consider what it means that God himself, Christ himself, dwells in sinners. So Christ is in you, dear saints. Know that, believe that, and treasure him. 
This reality transforms us. This reality is a treasure to us. For one, it makes us holy. For any of us who hate our sin and hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is stunning that Christ is in us, changing us from one degree to the next. I, for one, this week feel weary of my sin. And it's a good thing. I hope I, I continue to feel weary of my sin day in and day out. And so it's a good thing then that our treasure is Christ who is in us, for he will change us. Spurgeon compares it to a piece of iron left in the fire. And that black iron does not stay cold and black for long, but it begins to turn red and hot, so much so to the point that if your hand were to touch the iron and not the fire, you would not know the difference. And so it is when Christ is in us, we become like that fire, red, hot, burning with Christ's power to kill our sin and to make us like him. But not only that, but Christ in us gives us the, these countless blessings, but just a few more. Consider the peace and joy that comes from having Christ in us. You see, we can lose everything in a moment. Everything can be taken from you, but Christ, if he is in you, he cannot be taken from you. What peace is there in knowing that Christ is ours, and what joy is there that we have in knowing that Christ has come to us? And so this cannot be taken away, which gives us hope. Hope here and now. While everything goes from bad to worse, one thing is sure, our hope will not change. And so Christ, our treasure, he is with us. And all the blessings that come with him as well, our holiness, our joy, our peace, our hope, and the things like these are sure because Christ is with us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a treasure is Christ in his steadfast love. And while this is a present reality, we should also recognize there is a future reality to this as well. Christ, he is the hope of glory. I should correct myself. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And what is the glory that is to be revealed but all the joys of heaven? Everything that is wrong with this world, all that is broken, all that is tainted by sin, will be completely undone and made new, starting with yours and my war against our own sinful flesh. Christ in us, he is our hope of future glory. So Christian, I'm, I'm treasuring him today because the best is yet to come. He is the seal of our salvation 2 Corinthians 1, and he was put in us, that is the Spirit, this is the seal on us, 
And he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this is not the kind of wishful hoping, like hoping you, you win a game or hoping you win a lottery and get rich that way or whatever else it may be. But no, this is a hope that is a guarantee that cannot be taken from us. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want us to recognize the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. What a treasure we have in Christ who gives us this hope that the best is yet to come. And all the words spilt over the thousands of years and even the words that I'm saying today fail to describe the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Even our best imaginations fall short in comparison to all that is found in Christ. What treasure could possibly compare to him? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you want this treasure? I do. And so we have to ask now our, our next question this morning. What must we do to obtain Christ, our treasure? What must we do to have Christ in us? Well, Christian, if you have Christ in you already, what did you do to receive him? The answer might be kind of surprising if you do not know the answer already, but most of us do. Here's the next thing I want us to see. Jesus is the treasure that comes to you. When it comes to treasures, usually this requires a hunt. You have to go get the treasure. So you have your Easter egg hunt. You have to go and find it. Treasures usually require your doing to obtain and a load of good fortune along the way. I think about how many times Indiana Jones should have died and any other kind of treasure hunter. And this makes for good movies and good stories, but it makes for a terrible, terrible journey for those who would seek to find such treasures. Most of them end up empty-handed anyways. And yet what we have here in this treasure is not a treasure that is hard to obtain, but one that comes to you. Listen to our text. To them, verse 26 tells us that's the saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. I want to focus on the first phrase here. To them, God chose to make known this mystery. This treasure, which is Christ in you, comes to you because God chose to reveal him and give him to you. Christ is yours if you would but take hold of him by faith. There is no cleaning up required, no pilgrimage or mission that you must first do, nor is there any penance that you must complete before receiving Christ. 
But Christ, he comes to you by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so Christian, fellow pilgrimers who are trying to obtain this treasure, do not try to accomplish anything in order to receive Christ, but simply take hold of him by faith. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But this goes further than just even our own lack of works to receive this salvation, this treasure, this precious prize of Christ. For our ability to choose Jesus wasn't even required for us to receive Jesus after all. Look at the language again in verse 27. To them, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ's revealing to us was God's sovereign choice. It was his decision and not ours. God chose to reveal himself to the saints with all the riches of the glory of this mystery. Oh, that each and every one of us would learn not to despise the glorious doctrine of election, but instead we ought to rejoice that God chose to reveal Christ to us, this mystery that was hidden to us and all those who were before him. I didn't always love this doctrine, but I did not love it because I did not understand it, because I did not see it. I grumbled about it, and yet what does the scripture say? Is there injustice on God's part, his choosing some and not others? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We need to understand, if we're gonna understand this doctrine of election, we need to understand that what we deserve is death. What we deserve is God's wrath against sinners. And so there is no injustice on God's part for giving mercy to his saints. If anything, we should rejoice and be in recipients of his choosing. But let us not play the role of a God by deeming God's decree as injustice. Listen again to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who says, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Once again, you'll notice that it is God who is doing the work of illumination in our hearts so that we might actually know Christ, so that we might actually understand this mystery. And yet, what we see happening here is a miracle that could be compared to God's creation in the beginning when he said, let light shine out of darkness. And when God created the sun, no one accused him of injustice for putting it where he did, not further from Mars or closer to Mercury or however way to create life on other planets, but instead we all rejoiced and saw his creation for it was good. 
and it gave us life. So too, when he shines this light in our hearts so that we would know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we ought to all the more rejoice that he creates life where there was otherwise death. Listen to John, the evangelist himself. He says the very same thing. Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This revelation to us is the work not of your choosing, not even your parents raising, but it is the work of God who reveals mysteries to us. And so if, if it were left up to us Christians to have chosen God, we would be no different than the Jews who did not receive him. So we can rejoice and be thankful that God has chosen us so that we might know his irresistible grace, so that we might understand the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, but there's more going on here as well. Look again at Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known this mystery. This choosing of God wasn't the kind of tedious decision that one of us might make when we're thinking about, you know, what shirt should I wear in the morning or whatever else it might be that we just make flippantly. No. This word choose has more meanings than God just simply picking something. This word choose has to do with God delighting in that which he chooses. God, he takes pleasure to reveal the riches of the glory of this mystery to those whom he wills. We understand this. I choose to eat ice cream because I desire ice cream. Or better yet, I, I chose to marry my wife because I desired her and longed to marry her. And so too, God chooses his bride because he loves her, because he wants her. And so he chose you because he wanted you, because he loves you, because he desires you. And this isn't just my own invention here. This word that we see in this place, which is God's choosing, is translated in other places throughout the ESV more times than not as desire or will. And so look at Luke 5, 39. And no one after drinking old wine, underline this word, desires new. For he says the old is good. That is to say, this desire, no one chooses the new wine after they have tasted the good old wine. That's the whole point. It's better. They long for it. They desire it. So they choose it. And closer akin to what we're looking at today, listen to this word from Jesus and his choosing his disciples. From Mark 3.13, and when he went up to the mountain, he called and called to him those whom he desired, those whom he chose, and they came to him. And so understand, the word choose here, it just means desire. It's the same both ways, and desire means to choose. And so we can understand our text this morning all the more in Colossians 1.27. To them, God desired, he chose, he desired to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We know this, don't we? 
and that our salvation is not based on our doing, but God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you don't see God's love and his desire and his choosing, certainly you see it there. So let us not despise the doctrine of election, for in it we see God's desire to save us by his love. So three questions this morning. What is our treasure? Well, it's Jesus. He is our treasure. How do we obtain this treasure? Well, we don't obtain it through any works of ourselves, but it comes to us through the will of God who chooses to reveal him. And then finally, who is this treasure for? We see Jesus is a treasure for everyone. Again, as a, as a treasure, Christ is like, unlike, excuse me, Christ is unlike any other treasure. Usually with a treasure, there's only a select few who it is for. It is for those who put in the work, those who earn the treasure as their reward for going on their adventure. No doubt, there are many of us here who, who feel like we are unworthy of being recipients of this treasure, unworthy to be chosen by man, let alone by God unworthy to be a recipient of God's good pleasure, unworthy to receive Christ in us. And if that's how you feel, well, it's true. You are unworthy, and so am I. Every single one of us do not deserve this treasure. But here's the deal. The gospel is not good news for the righteous. No, rather, the gospel, it is good news for the sinner. So you could even say Jesus is the treasure, not just for everyone, but he is the treasure for sinners. Let me show you in this text. To them, God chose to make known how great, underline this, among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Who are the Gentiles? If you grew up in the church, you know who they are. The Gentiles were those who did not belong to Abraham's family. The Gentiles were all the other nations that were not Israel. The Gentiles were those who were cut off from the blessing of God through Israel. For ages, it seemed as if God's good pleasure would only rest with the select few who were born of the right family through Abraham's line. And yet, before Israel even existed, God had a plan. And it included a man in his family, Abraham. But his plan was not limited to Abraham's family alone. Listen to God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if you miss it here, you're going to get it over and over and over again if you keep reading through Genesis. Look again at 22. God reminds him of the promise that he made to him. Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and of the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So understand, there's a land there for you, a blessing for your family, Abraham, but it's not just for you. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And in case Abraham forgot it and didn't pass it along to his children, God then reminds Isaac, Abraham's son, of the very same covenant that he made with Abraham. Genesis 26, I will multiply your offspring, Isaac, as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then if Abraham and Isaac failed to pass that covenant along, that promise along to their son Jacob and grandson, God reminds him as well. Your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth, Jacob, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God intended to bless the nations, not just Israel, but all peoples, including the Gentiles. But but by the time you get to Joshua, something weird happens. You see, part of God's promise is fulfilled. Israel's taking the land that God promised that they would receive, and yet it's not looking so good for the Gentiles. If anything, what we see is God's wrath against the Gentiles. And throughout the rest of of the Old Testament, we get small glimpses of God's favor towards these other peoples, but for the most part, it's all bleak. But what we should see is this is not just a picture of, of different nations and ethnicities, but, but more so what we should understand in these Gentiles in comparison to Jews is these were people who did not belong to God, who did not deserve God. These were pagans. These were sinners who were opposed to God and his good will. These Gentiles were those who worshipped false gods. These Gentiles were those who sacrificed their children to their gods. These Gentiles were those who indulged in every passion of the flesh as a part of their worship to their gods. So what's happening here is quite miraculous that this mystery and all the glory that is there in it is abundantly poured out on the Gentiles for these Gentiles did not deserve this reward. And then again, neither did Israel either. They were no better than the rest of the nations, but God chose them to show his rich mercy towards them. And he also gave us the Gentiles as a look of what God feels towards sinners. He's not pleased with them, but he will destroy them. And yet the surprising turn of results is that he would bless them. This is hard for us in the church because we look at people outside of the church even today and we think of them as denying God, aborting their children, and indulging in every passion of the flesh. And some of us don't really like them very much. And the Jews didn't like the Gentiles either. So what we should see in this is that God reveals this mystery and he gives this treasure to the worst of sinners. Israel's outlook towards the Gentiles might not be that different from ours. Listen to how Israel viewed these Gentiles. This is Jesus' words. But he said, it is not right to take the children's bread, that is Israel's bread, and throw it to the dogs. That's the Gentiles. We're not talking about man's best friend here. We're talking about those who were unclean. Those who might picture perhaps a stray dog that you wouldn't let into your, your own house, maybe even a cat. 
This is not a good picture of a dog here. The Gentiles, they were not worthy to eat that which belonged to Israel. That's the point of this text. And yet, what we see is God had a better plan. God would pour out his love on all peoples who never deserved his favor. So, sinner, if you think this treasure is not for you because what you've done in the past, what you should see in this is it was God's good pleasure. He chose to reveal this mystery to all the saints that there is a great treasure among the Gentiles that are the riches, the glory of this mystery. So it's not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. And if you are a sinner this morning, then Christ is for you. And so Christian, let us ask the question that we started with. Why do you follow Jesus? We follow him because God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Praise be to God, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us and that you have made us an object of your affection, that you love us and that you set our love on us when we were still your enemies. And so, Lord, may we rejoice in this. May we treasure Christ. And may we be faithful to you no matter what the cost. For in him is a treasure that all the riches of this world fails to compare to. So, Lord, now even as we seek you, would you satisfy us with your steadfast love? Cause for hearts to burn for you. For those who are dead in their sins, Lord, would you give them new life? In Christ's name, amen.